Thank you, Lisa. Good morning. Well, that's loud. Wake up. <laughs> if you uh, have a Bible with you, if you will open to Acts chapter 3. My name is Abby Fernandez, and I am the last of the teaching leaders. So you've now met us all. And I want to say on behalf of the whole team, just once again, we are so glad that you all have decided to study Acts with us this year. So if you remember last week, Tabitha taught us about the incredible mountaintop experience of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, the literal Spirit of God, who was promised by Jesus, came down and rested upon the early believers. And the 120 followers of Jesus are now full of the Holy Spirit, and they start speaking of the mighty wonders of God to, in the language of all the Jews who were in Jerusalem at the time. And Acts 2.5 tells us that Jews from every nation under heaven were there during that time. Then we watched Peter get up and give a sermon, obviously in the power of the Holy Spirit, because 3,000 people come to know Jesus. The church was literally born and set on fire. Okay, They're all living in harmony. They're eating food together. They're praying. They're going to... Those kind of Bible studies, it was really kind of like teaching by the apostles, but you get the gist, right? It was the ultimate spiritual mountaintop experience. And Acts 2.43 tells us that everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. However, Luke doesn't tell us what any of those miraculous signs and wonderful things were until we get to chapter 3. And he lets us in on just at least one. So before we dive into Acts 3, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to sit here and study your word. Thank you for each of these ladies who have come. And uh, we just want to submit ourselves under your word. Lord, we want to sit underneath it. We want it to be the authority and the power in our life. And Lord, we ask that you would show us what you want us to know. Lord, would the Holy Spirit just come out of my mouth and speak the words that you want. And I pray that all of our hearts would be ready to receive whatever message it is that you want to teach us through your word this morning. Lord, only your word has the power to transform lives. And we just love it and want you to show us more of you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so read with me starting in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Now, right off the bat, I just want to stop. This is not on your handout, but as Tabitha said last week, this one's for free, okay? Like, we can't go by without saying, I love that Acts chapter 3 starts in this super mundane, we're just going up to the temple to pray after the incredible mountaintop experience that was chapter 2. And this teaches us a very important lesson. We were not created to live on the spiritual mountaintops on this earth. That's reserved for heaven. We see this all throughout scripture at the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses at Mount Sinai, the feeding of 5,000. Every time there's a big spiritual mountaintop experience, they either have to eventually come down from the mountain or get in a boat and go through a storm, right? Because we were not created to live on the spiritual mountaintop. Let's enjoy them while we're there. But we can't expect for those times to carry us through every other day of our life. And I love the way that we open the word and we see Peter and John coming off Pentecost and they're just going to the temple to pray. And what this teaches us is that when we experience these times of refreshing, we need to make sure that they are always followed by the spiritual disciplines of prayer, 
Bible study, getting together in corporate worship with the believers. And I know that I am speaking to the choir because each of you have decided to come to church on a Tuesday to study God's word. But I just want it to be a reminder to you and to me, let's keep persevering even when it's hard. Let's not give up. Let's continue setting aside time daily to study God's word and be together with other believers. The biblical illustrator commentary worded it this way, the Pentecostal blessings of yesterday cannot supply our need of God's inspiration and blessing today. And I love that. Okay, let's keep reading. Acts 3, 1 through 10. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So the first thing I want us to see this morning that is on your handout is a picture of the gospel. In Acts 3, we're going to see a spiritual truth so beautifully displayed through a physical picture. This is like Mark all over again. You see, apart from Christ, we are all the beggar. We are lying outside of the temple gates, unable to do anything on our own to get ourselves into the presence of God. And just like this beggar, humankind, us, before we know Jesus, we look for ways to alleviate the pain, but not fix the problem. He had a great community. These friends literally carried him up right up to the gate of the temple, but they couldn't fix his deepest need. Every time he would beg for money, yeah, he would get money, but money couldn't buy the healing that he needed. He needed a touch from Jesus just like every other human being. When Peter and John introduced him to the name and the power of Jesus, they stretched out their hand, and in that moment, the beggar had a choice. He could reach out in faith and be healed, or he could refuse and stay lame. And his act of faith is what healed him. Well, it healed what was broken since birth, just like our act of faith to believe in Jesus heals our sin nature that has broken us since birth. So look with me again in verse 8. After he exercises faith and stands, we find him jumping to his feet and beginning to walk. And then he goes with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. This was no gradual transformation. He wasn't like hobbling along with Peter and John. Like the dude got up, started walking, praising, jumping, ran into the temple. And this is another picture of the gospel because at the moment of your salvation, your justification is complete. You are a new creation You're going to grow and you're going to get stronger over time the longer you walk with the Lord, but you are no longer a cripple. Our salvation, our spiritual healing from death to life is as wonderful and remarkable as the physical healing of this cripple. And you know what's the most beautiful thing to me about this whole scene? 
his first act was to go through the gate called beautiful and enter the temple. Don't you love that the gate was called beautiful? It could have been any gate, but I love this because it is so precious that the first time he goes into the temple is through the gate called beautiful. Salvation that comes through Jesus alone that ushers us into the presence of God, that's beautiful. Acts 3.10 tells us that those inside the temple recognized him as the same man who used to sit there begging because we find out in Acts 4 he was actually over 40 years old. When God does a work in your life, you still may be recognized for what you were. But let's take a lesson from this guy and let's choose to walk out in our new identity in Christ. And let's also remember that we are never too old from a touch from Jesus. The beggar is a beautiful physical picture of the beauty of the gospel. So second, I want us to see in Acts 3 the presentation of the gospel. So the gospel is actually presented clearly twice in Acts 3, first to the beggar and then to the crowd. And just like we, Lord willing, show through our actions a picture of the gospel and then follow up with words, we're going to see Peter and John do the same thing. They first share the gospel with the beggar through their actions. Peter and John are going about their daily lives, pursuing the faithfulness of God. You know, they aren't at home dreaming about, like, what the next big revival meeting is going to be. Ironically, if they stayed home looking for the next best thing, they would have missed the next best thing that God wanted them to do, right? They were just moving on with God. They were sticking to the spiritual disciplines of corporate prayer. And they even walked to the temple in the light of the gospel, I was convicted this week because, you know, as they were walking to the temple, they weren't so engaged with conversation, talking to each other, even about, like, God or, like, what's the next passage you're going to use in your sermon or way to, you know, follow Jesus. Like, they could have done all those things. All things are well and good, but they would have been so busy or distracted they could have missed the beggar. Instead, they look at him. They could have argued that it wasn't a good time. They didn't want to be late for prayer, right? But they didn't. They looked straight at him. And Satan has done a phenomenal job at distracting us so that we are too busy looking down to look around. And it causes us to miss those people that God has put in our path. So this week, I asked myself a really difficult question. I'm just letting you know, I'm going to ask a lot of questions, and I have asked them all of myself this week. So I'm just inviting you to the party (laughs) as we do this. I asked myself, how many times am I going about even doing things for God, that I'm so busy or distracted that I step around or ignore those that God has placed in my path? When was the last time I stopped and I actually fixed my gaze on someone? However, not only did Peter and John look intently, but after speaking over him in the name of Jesus, it says they reached out their hands and they helped him up. The biblical illustrator commentary described this so pretty beautifully. They said, we need an eye in our head and a tongue in our mouth and a hand at the end of our arm, which has in it some tingle of everlasting love. We need a heart working behind all three, which has been kindled from the heart of Jesus Christ, who for us and for our salvation took on flesh and died upon the cross. The commentary goes on to write, success is to grasp at the opportunity Failure is to let it pass. See, Peter and John understood something that we so often forget. Jesus wants our availability because the transformation is actually up to him. 
Success is truly as simple as not letting that opportunity God gives you pass by. The result is literally up to God. Finally, not only did they grasp at the opportunity to gaze intently and reach out and touch him and help him up in the name of Christ, they went with him into the, into the temple. Peter and John give such a beautiful picture of how to show the gospel through their actions. It's not going to always be convenient or clean. Most of the time, I would say it's probably going to be super inconvenient. However, in almost everyone's salvation story on this earth, there's a human element. God doesn't usually like supernaturally reveal himself to someone without any human intervention. Like sometimes that does happen, right? But more often than not, God chooses to use human instruments to herald his good message. So are we willing to be those human instruments in the lives of others? Do we know what's going on just outside the gate of our comfortable and spiritual life so that we can present the gospel to those in our path? Do I even see those around me that God has put in my path at the grocery store, at the doctor's office, or even at the DMV? Y'all, there is so much time to see people at the DMV. You are literally going to be there forever, so you might as well spiritually redeem it. I just had to renew my license, so this is a little fresh. And you know, while I was there, I was so tempted to look down and read the really good book that I brought. But this doesn't happen very often. I was so compelled while sitting there to not look down but to look around. And when you smile and make eye contact with somebody, it is surprising what kind of conversations and where those go. So let's give the Lord our availability, especially at the DMV. I actually left and I called my husband. I was like, well, that wasn't a monumental waste of time. So <laughs> good. So let's also remember through the example of Peter and John that God's not asking us to give what we do not have but to just be faithful to give what he has given us. Peter and John didn't have money to spare, but they had Jesus. So what can we offer those that God has placed in our path? I think sometimes it's almost easier to let go of a little money than it is to invest in someone's life. We feel good about that. We're like, look, I gave. I can now move on. And I'm not saying that giving is not important. I would probably say that we could all stand to give a little bit more to God's mission. But sometimes giving just a little bit of money is only going to make their time on earth a little more comfortable, but maybe do nothing for their eternity separated from God. So let's commit to reach out our hands and fix our gaze, offering what will last for eternity and not just alleviate the hurt for today. So one day several years ago, I was talking to my best friend and she had to run because she was going to buy school supplies for the cashier at Harris Teeter. And I had to ask, first of all, how did you know the cashier even had children, let alone that they needed school supplies? And second, like, what? Seriously, who does this? Because you see, my friend is an expert at stopping and really seeing those God puts in our path. She never rushes by them. And that day, she didn't rush out of the grocery store as quickly as possible, even though she had a toddler in her arms, a part-time job, a husband, and two other kids to care for. She took the time to stop look that cashier in the eye, and ask questions. And before long, her new friend was crying because she couldn't afford to buy school supplies for her child. This is just one example. She knows the life story of every single person she has ever come in contact with. And it has been so convicting. We were on our way to Bible study one day, and we had to actually stop at Harris Teeter so she could give a sympathy card to another cashier that she had met that shared with her that she had lost someone very close to her that week. It was amazing to me. 
Over the course of 16 years of friendship, she has taught me to slow down and really see those around me. I was channeling her at the DMV. It was good. It's like, it was, I finally did it. I watched her. I finally did it. This is how we are to present the gospel. Jesus came to save people, and my friend is never too busy in ministry to stop seeing the people. And guess what? Her actions that day did not lead to anyone's salvation that day, but it provided her the credibility to go another day and share the gospel with them later on. And that is what our actions are supposed to do. It provides the credibility to actually share the words later on. And this is exactly what we see with Peter and John. Their actions with the beggar gave them the credibility with the crowd to then speak the gospel. So look with me in chapter 3, verse 12. Peter saw the crowd gathered, and he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So once again, this passage teaches us that our actions don't typically save people. We also have to speak the gospel. Our actions just give us the opportunity to speak the gospel. We can't stop at just showing Jesus. We have to share Jesus. So why is Peter so bold and clear in the presentation of the gospel? Because there is no room for a watered-down gospel in the church. Jesus died extremely recently to make it very clear. And we're going to see later that these men are going to give their lives to make sure that it's very clear. And it doesn't matter who gets mad about it. The gospel was more important. One thing that we're going to see continually throughout our study of Acts is just how careful the, early apost the apostles and the early church leaders are when they handle the message of the gospel. They're going to make sure through councils and letters and talking that the gospel stays very pure and very right and the message doesn't get muddied. And Peter doesn't mince words, right? He begins by explaining that the miracle was not done in their power, only through the power of Jesus. See, when we clearly present the gospel, Jesus has to be the hero of the story. I loved the, the sentence that Pastor Brian sent out in his latest church-wide email. He wrote, we tend to look for heroes, but God looks to those who make him their hero. Second, Peter points out their sin. He says, you handed Jesus over to be killed. You disowned him. You killed the author of life. When we present the gospel, we actually have to clearly present our unrighteousness before a very righteous God. Romans 3.23 says that all have fallen short and fallen short of the glory of God. People don't know they need a rescuer until they know they need to be rescued, right? So we need to be very clear and not be afraid to tell people that you can't do enough. You're not enough, but Jesus is. And finally, Peter points the crowd to what they must do. Look again at verse 19. 
Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He goes on to tell them in verse 26 that Jesus can turn them from their wicked ways just like they had physically turned the beggar from his disability. So do you know how to present the gospel clearly? When was the last time you presented the gospel? Through your actions first, but then just as importantly through your words. We had the same power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So let's ask God for opportunities to share the gospel. And I can't go on without saying, have you received the gospel in your life? Have you come to a place that you recognize that you're a sinner in desperate need of a rescuer? And no matter how many good things you do or how hard you work, you can't be good enough to earn righteousness. Have you repented of your sin and asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? If not, I beg you to find your lamb's leader after this meeting and talk to her about it. She would love nothing more than to share that with you. So third, I want us to see the price of the gospel. Look with me in Acts 4, starting in verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people, and they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in, them in jail until the next day. So we like to say the gospel is a free gift of grace, and it completely is. Because we don't have to do anything but repent and believe in order to receive forgiveness of sins and salvation through Jesus. But the gospel is costly. It cost Jesus his life, and it should cost you yours. No, maybe like not as martyrs like the early apostles were, but scripture tells us that Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? So Peter and John, they spend the night in prison, and they don't know what's going to happen. Let's remember, they were put in prison by the same people who two months prior crucified Jesus, right? These thoughts had to be going through their minds as they sat in prison that night. But I think based upon Peter's speech the next morning, they were ready. They'd witnessed their Savior and Lord and friend crucified. They knew the cost, but Jesus was worth it. Others hearing about Jesus was worth it. So we have to ask ourselves, what's Jesus worth to me? Are we willing to give our comfort, our convenience, our children to the mission field, our safety, our resources, our time, our very lives? Lord, may we fall more in love with you so we can truly say, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So fourth, let's look at the power of the gospel. Let's keep reading Acts 4, starting in verse 4. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. And the next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power and what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, 
you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So we see very clearly the power of the gospel displayed in this passage of scripture, first in the multitude. We find out something very staggering in verse 4, that at many who had heard Peter's sermon believed, and now the number of believers is 5,000. Since Pentecost, 5,000 people have come to know Jesus. The gospel has the power to change lives. But not only is the multitude changed by the power of the gospel, we have got to take a moment and look at Peter and how he was changed by the power of the gospel. Let's keep reading in verse 18. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Remember how Peter acted the last time he was in this crowd? Peter was so afraid that when a little servant girl came up and was like, I think you've been with Jesus, he was like, no, absolutely not. And he cursed and he denied him. Now we see Peter standing up before these very men who crucified, who was you know, presiding over the trial to crucify Jesus, the ones he was so afraid of only two months ago, and say, it is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Peter got a second chance, and man, did he take it. Wait, right, what a difference. The gospel has the power to change lives. Romans 8.11 tells us the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. And it goes on to say in verse 15, that spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Peter's no longer standing for Jesus in his own strength. He has the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead living inside of him, and that spirit has made Peter co-heirs with Christ, and that's the difference. For Peter and for us, the gospel changes and empowers his children. And I pray that we can all and will all say with Peter, I can't help but talk about what I have seen and heard. Finally, I want us to see prayers that are infused by the gospel. Look with me in Acts 4, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So upon their release, Peter and John run straight back to their community. I love how the NIV says they went back to their own people. Like, I love that. Who are your people? Who, what kind of safe haven are you for those people? Do you have a Christian community to hold you up when trials come? And does your community look like this? Because their first response was to pray. That's amazing. Acts 4 teaches us that a community or a person with a gospel-infused prayer life is first grounded in the truth of who God is. They don't start praying about the threats of the Sanhedrin and the trial. They start reminding themselves of just who they are talking to. And together they speak words of worship of God and that God alone is sovereign over everything. And the truth that nothing has happened, including the death of Jesus, accidentally or outside of God's plan. I love it when they say, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand was, is what would happen. When life started to feel out of control, they reminded themselves together just who was in control. We've talked about this so many times because it has impacted my life. Kathy used to always say, stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. And that's exactly what they did. They didn't listen to the fear. They didn't listen to the hurt or the worry or the concern. They started talking to themselves about who God was. Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews... They fell right into God's plan. They didn't supersede it. And can we just take a moment to praise the Lord that despite their best efforts, they couldn't stop God's plan. They actually participated in what God was up to all along. You know, they start. They thought they were squashing the message of Jesus. But all they did was just exponentially throw it out into the whole world for all time. Right? I love that. They did what God's power had decided beforehand What is what would happen. So, What does your prayer life look like when you're going through a difficult trial? Do you rehearse your problem or rehearse the sovereignty and power of Almighty God? Not only does a community with a gospel-infused prayer life ground itself in the truth of who God is, but they spend more time aligning their heart to the character of God than asking God to align his heart with their problem. And this is where conviction poured all over me this week because they didn't pray for safety. Instead, they asked God to enable them to speak his words with great boldness. They asked for more miracles and more wonders to spread the gospel. Y'all, they literally prayed for more of what landed them in jail in the first place. And I found myself asking, would I be willing to pray for God to move, if I knew that if he chose to answer that prayer, it could put me or my family in an unsafe or at the very least uncomfortable position. And, you know, these guys aren't loners. We know Peter has a family, right? Jesus healed his mother-in-law at least once. And John was literally in charge of taking care of Jesus' mother, Mary, right? Surely he had a reason to play it safe. He could have argued that he could not put himself into harm's way because after all, Jesus from the cross said, John, take care of my mother. Like that's a really good excuse if I've ever had one in my whole life, but he didn't. He didn't pursue safety. He pursued the gospel. And as I started studying acts of my own this May, all summer long, this question of safety kept coming back to my mind 
And I found myself praying, Lord, help me to desire your spirit more than I desire safety. I had to question whether the Lord was my greatest treasure. And I'll be honest to say, I don't have all the answers yet because I do still pray that the Lord would keep my family safe. But I am also asking the Lord to use acts to refine me, to make me more like him. To increase my love for what he loves, whatever that looks like. And that's a really overwhelming prayer. But the truth is, I trust my overwhelming father. So we see God answer their prayer. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak boldly. Y'all, when you pray for boldness and God's glory, he's going to give you the spirit to do it. And a gospel-infused prayer life is going to look different. It's not going to align with the American dream, but with the eternal kingdom of God. So what does your prayer life say about which kingdom you're actually pursuing? In Acts, in chapter 3 and 4, we see that Peter and John are definitely not riding on the coattails of Pentecost. They have been through the valley, and they are staying close to God, relying on the Holy Spirit to see them through. And Acts is only going to get harder on these guys as the weeks go on. It won't be long before the church has to scatter because it is simply too dangerous to stay in Jerusalem. But let's remember, no matter what they face or where they go, they have the final words of Jesus to them from Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always even to the end of the age. Let us also remember that he is with each of us too. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are with us. And Lord, we just want to come before you and just confess that so often our prayer life doesn't align with your kingdom, but with ours. Lord, would you search our hearts and would you show us those areas that we need to sit under you a little bit more? Would you ruin everything in us that is not of you? And would you help us to fan the flame of the Holy Spirit in our life that we would be used mightily for the gospel? In Jesus' name, amen.